welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So the person's voice you are about to hear is one of the candidates that has been on stage at the 2020 election. Can you guess who it might be? All right, I'll give you some clues. Uh, She's an author, a lecturer, an activist. She's written 13 books, including four New York Times bestsellers, number one bestsellers nonetheless, on advice and spirituality and so on. After the last debate, her name was Googled the most in 49 of the 50 states in the United States. Yes, it is the one and only Marianne Williamson. I'm very, very excited to have her on the show. We're going to talk about a lot of things uh, that she cares about and why she's running for president. We're going to talk about why anyone would want to run for president, what it's like to kind of be on the campaign trail. We're going to get into a lot of the uh, political positions she cares about, whether it's criminal justice, education, families, guns, immigration, and so on. Really going to talk a lot about religion and the Democratic Party and why the Democratic Party has screwed that whole thing up. Um, And of course, we're going to talk about the jerk-in-chief Donald J. You-know-who. So without further ado, I'm very, very excited to welcome Marianne Williamson to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is very, very exciting. I I don't even know where to get started. So you're on the road in California. You're heading to Iowa and then back to San Francisco. And then then what? What's after that? I think after Iowa is Baltimore and then San Francisco. And then I don't even know. You know, you just kind of wake up in the morning and you assume somebody knows where you are. Somebody will tell you where to go. (laughs) So you have a uh, so I have a, a million questions for you, and I want to get into into your, your campaign and your politics and everything. But one of the questions that I'm curious about is what what it's like when you're kind of on the campaign trail and everyone is watching everything you do. Like like when you're going to like a state fair and you're eating funnel cake and there's cameras on you and things like that. Is that fun? That cannot be fun. No, you feel you're on a high high wire, you know, tightrope. What did they call it? Tightrope. Tightrope. You feel you're on same, a tightrope all the time. And even if it's not a news camera, everybody has a video camera. Everybody has their phone out these days. Yeah. So you're aware is it, that is any it, misstep can not only be used against you, it could be used to shut everything down. And do you... Is that fun? Can, no, can of course fun. not. It's beyond nerve-wracking. On the other hand, it's great rehearsal for a tough job like the presidency. Yeah. So, okay, so let's get into how you even got here. So was there like an aha moment for you when you said, you know what, I'm going to do this? I mean, I could think of no worse job on planet Earth than being president of the United States of America. Like, it just sounds awful to me. But, you know, what was the thing that made you decide you wanted to do it? First of all, I would distrust anyone who is all giddy and excited about the prospect of being president of the United States. Yeah. For the reason that you said, not that I think it would be the worst job in the world, but I think clearly it's the most difficult job in the world. Um, And that of itself is very sobering. So for that reason, and also for... Also because you understand the inevitable challenges of a campaign. You don't run for president impulsively. And so what was the lead up for your decision? It was a process that probably lasted a year and a half. A lot to think about. A lot of people, not that many people, but quite a few people to talk to. Uh, 
professional colleagues, personal friends, family, of course, you don't go into this easily. You don't go into it um, carelessly. So when you decided you were going to run and, and then in the place you are now, was, has the, is what you imagined it would be, is, has this experience been exa- kind of what you imagined it would be or has it been worse or better? Or It's one of those things where you know what it's going to be, but knowing what it's going to be is different than experiencing what it is. Hmm, got so it. in many ways it's what I knew, but even then... Okay, so so uh, there's a lot of you have a lot of uh, uh, different issues that that you want to talk about as far as your campaign and everything. And one of the ones that I kind of would love to get to first because it's it's like central this week in the news is immigration uh, and and something that I think is so interesting that you have said and not a lot of people have said, especially up on those stages, is that. Uh, the, 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 the issues with the immigration problems that we have today from South America are a result of our own actions from decades and decades uh, past. The, you have solutions to immigration, you know, uh, with DACA and all these other things. But what are the, what are the actual solutions to the problem, uh, if you think it's a problem or not, um, that are a long-term solution that actually fix the issue at the root cause um, and not necessarily have to deal with it at the border? Well, first of all, I did not say that uh, problems today are the direct result of American foreign policy. I did acknowledge that American foreign policy has a role there. Got it. But I, I don't want to, nor did I say that it's a direct result. Immigration is not a problem in the United States That's not what it is. It's part of the fabric of who we are. All four of my grandparents came through Ellis Island. Your huddled mass is yearning to breathe free. This is a core value of the United States. If you are not descended from slaves or Native Americans who were here for thousands of years before the white settler even came, it's like, who who do we think we are? This is, this is who, this is what America is. Now, Even before this particular uh, eruption of drama, let's go back a little bit. Ronald Reagan gave 8 million people amnesty. And before 1973, if someone was undocumented, all they had to do was walk over to the registry office and, and handle it. So the idea of immigrants coming to this country is not traditionally seen as a problem. It is traditionally seen as part of the fabric of of our society. And also, let's be very clear, it's not just that this country offers something to the immigrant. The immigrant offers something to this country. What the immigrant brings in terms of the hunger for a better life, the hunger to make it here, the hunger to give them their children something better, the hunger to have opportunities they didn't have, that's 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 a that's a beneficent. That, that's a, a stimulant. That is a, a cultural stimulant in, in our society. Now, this current situation is a humanitarian crisis in Honduras, in El Salvador, and Guatemala, which, as you said, uh, there are ways which, because of a larger issue concerning uh, American international policy, just like American domestic policy, when the United States has used our power more to advocate for uh, corporate benefits 
than for our genuine democratic values and humanitarian values, whether it's international or domestic. We are not being who we are intended to be as a nation. We're not doing what I believe we're intended to do as a nation, and chaos rather than uh, peace erupts. But even then, when you consider the humanitarian crisis that has led so many people to flee unbearable violence and come here. Oh, I, I'm 1,000% with you. I think that the worst thing that this administration has done has been the immigration issue. I, I mean, I think, I honestly think that Stephen Miller may be a sociopath and I, one of the worst people in the White House, worse than Donald Trump in my personal opinion, and yet he's writing this whole immigration policy and so on. But but at the same time, I also look at you know uh, someone who's running next to you, uh, Yang, who who understands that automation is coming and there's going to be massive job loss and all these issues that are going to come. It's you know, and if you continue to see that happen, uh, not just in North America but in South America, if you can continue to see violence in South America and people fleeing their homes. I, I'm not saying turn them away. I'm saying there has to be a solution, well, and I don't. And the solution isn't just to let hundreds of millions of people in. It's also to fix the problem of the well, recourse. But how do you all, do that? We're not dealing with hundreds of millions of people at the Yet. border. We, when well, you have climate change, you have you know all of these things. We that could are have up to 200 uh, uh, million climate refugees uh, if we do not reverse climate change. But that's once again that's not an issue. Just what's happening at our border. We need massive humanitarian assistance, obviously, and and massive uh, democracy building assistance in the Northern Triangle in those countries. I mean, this is just another example, and and my campaign is. Is, is, is based on this across the board. Many issues where we find ourselves having to spend so much money, so many resources on dealing with symptoms when the causes were left unaddressed, the causes were left unacknowledged and uh, festering for years until the point came where uh, some drama erupts and we have to deal with it. This is why for myself, all my foreign policy is built around the notion that we should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk. What I want for both domestic and international policies are policies that are aligned with the idea that is the purpose of government to unleash the spirit of people, uncap people's dreams, and do whatever we can to help people thrive. This is the way to develop peace. This is the way to develop prosperity. So when you have large groups of desperate people, desperate people do desperate things. Large groups of desperate people are more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces, who, at whatever geniuses, were looking at Latin American foreign policy over the last few decades. What, you thought this wasn't going to come to our door? That's what everything is about right now. We have things at, at the level of stage four cancers that have been stage one cancers for a long time. But when they were stage one cancers, we weren't personally feeling it, and so we didn't address it. Obviously, we need... We that term comprehensive immigration reform. Obviously, we need more agents. Obviously, we need more uh, more technology. Obviously, we need more points of entry, etc. But you know, when I visited a when I visited a um, a refugee camp in Jordan called Zatari, that was Syrian refugees. One of the things that impacted me: these women were talking about what would happen ultimately. And they said, we don't know if we will end up in Europe. We don't know if we will end up in the United States. We don't know if we will end up in another Arab country. Obviously, she said, our preference would be that we got to go back to Syria. I think that the vast majority of people on this planet would like to live, not all of them, 
but millions and millions of people would prefer to live in their own country, but their own country in a as a peaceful in a peaceful country in a free society. They're not all just not all the people of the world wake up in the morning thinking, if only I could go to the United States. But millions and millions of people think, oh, if only I could get to freedom and peace. Do you think that the all of the supporters that um, Trump supporters that are you know so anti-immigrant is it is it a fear thing for them? Is it a is it a racism thing? Is it a you know what is it that it's it's something that it's clear that Trump, as you've seen from the last few weeks, as he started his you know 2020 campaign speeches, um, it's clear to him that he understands that it is you know going after the squad for you know in very racist ways, all the things that he's he's said publicly that are just diabolical in my personal opinion. Um, he he sees that it is a. Uh, a divisive issue that his base loves. Why? There is an underlying philosophical contest. It underlies many issues. And it has to do with basic concept of American identity. And it is the contest between the forces of exclusion and the forces of inclusion. That's what's going on underneath all of this doesn't just apply to uh, immigrants. It applies to black people. It applies to gay people. It applies to Jews. It applies to everything. There are those of us who look down the road 50 years and we go, wow, this is like so cool because everybody's going to be here and everybody's going to be empowered and everybody's going to be with everybody. And oh my goodness, that's so interesting how the blood mixes and how the cultures mix and the creativity. And oh my God, it's going to be amazing. This is so cool. And we're raising our children to, to appreciate that. We just think it's all great. And then there are other people who, who look at that and see that as an annihilation of what they see as their identity and the identity of this country. And just as we are excited, they are as convicted, no, we will not be doing that. This is not new. This is just an, uh, an iteration of that which has been around forever. But the, here's the part that makes me scratch my head. And for me, maybe one of the most important questions for you on this podcast is, these are people who are religious, right? Quote, unquote. Uh, they are... Most of the people on the right, uh, most people who support Trump identify as being Christians or Catholics. They go to church. They pray to Jesus. And yet they are the ones that say we shouldn't be letting people into our country and we – all these different things like that. How can you – how can they reconcile that? I don't understand that. Well, I would be very careful with that assumption, most of these people are religious. First of all, just the fact that anyone uh, purports to be any religion, uh, don't put onto the religion what those people say in the name of religion. I mean, before Muhammad Atta cut someone's throat, he said, God is great. You know, you were talking earlier about Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller is Jewish, but some of his policies are as opposite the basic tenets of Judaism as you can even imagine. So I think we want to be, um, we want to be careful there. Okay, but but you ha- so you have talked about, and I mean going back to the early '90s, talked about one of the big problems in the Democratic Party is that uh, we have pushed out uh, religion. Um, uh, you have a quote from 1991, I believe it was, um, where you were talking about how 
the fact that uh, you know you you give these talks and um, and you mention the word God and all of these kind of liberal elites slam their checkbook shut and and run out of the room. Uh, you have you take all these Americans who are religious, and nine out of ten Americans are believe in God uh, from Pew Research, um, and they are left to identify with the Republican Party as a result of that. And so you you have these people that have these beliefs, and and uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg said this on stage when he was uh, on stage with you um, recently. Uh, you have these people who have these beliefs, but they don't have a party that believes in the same thing as them. So they go to this other side, and then they start to believe all the things that the other side believes, which are not are not religious. Yeah. So how so how do you fix that? Well, whatever geniuses thought it was a good idea. Uh, to uh, create a situation in which people of faith felt in any way dismissed by the Democratic Party. Might want to think again, because how's that working out for you, fellas? Do they? Do you think that they understand that at this point, or no? No, because the arrogance. You know, a lot of uh, for all of us as individuals, I would. Uh, that's true of me as much as anyone else. Some of our usually our character defects are unconscious. That's why you need other people who look at you and say, you know you're a jerk, right? You know that you're doing this or that. And sometimes, you know, we're, it's called a blind spot for a reason. But I grew up at a time when there was a very vital religious left. During the Vietnam War protests, uh, the Daniel Berrigan, the Berrigan brothers, and William Sloan Coffin, JFK said we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. Bobby Kennedy talked about how it was a contest for the soul of America. Martin Luther King obviously contextualized his, his political views within a spiritual and religious context. It's been only the last few decades that the Democratic Party, so many members of the Democratic Party, assumed this overly corporatized, overly secularized languaging, which of itself was not a problem. But what that languaging helped create is this dismissive, condescending, arrogant attitude too often towards people of faith. Now, the disconnection between black churches and progressive politics has never occurred. There, the connection has remained, has remained solid. What does that result in? That the, they re- receive proper respect. Mm. Their activism, their left-wing activism, and their their religion has never been separated as a community, and it has never been treated uh, without respect by the powers within the Democratic Party. But there's a bigger narrative and a bigger uh, cultural and historical unfolding here that's not just about the Democratic Party, and that's about what's happened in America. When I was growing up, both Catholics and Jews were a large uh, a large portion of social justice commitment in the United States. When you thought in terms of poverty issues, when you thought in terms of justice issues, you, 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 you were very clear that the Jews and the Catholics were standing firm. What started to happen kind of simultaneously was that Catholics became very, very almost singularly focused as a group on abortion. And the Jews became almost singularly focused as a group institutionally on Israel. And when that happened, in both cases, a lot of energy, uh, there was a lot of air uh, sucked out of the the balloon of this major uh, religious, institutional religious support for issues of of social justice. And so do you think that there is going to be uh, 
you know, there, I said before that, and I say this as um, someone who has reported on this a lot and spent time with people in the South and elsewhere and in Texas and so on who are Trump supporters and, and do line up with that religious aspect. But I've also met people recently uh, who are religious, not Trump supporters anymore because they think he's a bad person uh, and are kind of, you know, as one, one woman said to me recently, you know, I, I'm without a party right now. Do you think that the Democratic Party has it, will, is aware enough at this point to kind of turn that around or are they still oblivious? Well, I personally think they ought to nominate someone who really understands all this. <laughs> um, many people have not so much been attracted to the Republicans as unattracted to the Democrats for that reason, mm -hmm. have felt uh, dismissed, have felt talked down to. The Republicans have the elitist policies, but oddly, an almost egalitarian relationship to their own constituency. Democrats have the egalitarian policies for the most part, but an oddly more elitist relationship to its own constituency. Mm. Sometimes with the Democratic establishment, you feel like you have to audition to be considered a Democrat. Hmm. And my my and view. They also turn on their own, like no one. Well, else. like nothing, and I know that now in a way I never realized or even thought was true. Because of the vaccination stuff, or uh, all of it, but particularly anything that has to do with uh, spirituality, um, it, it, it's almost an a uh, almost a projection onto you that you are less smart, you're less intellectually sophisticated, um, you're some kind of an intellectual lightweight because you have any um, deep spiritual uh, uh, conviction. Um, that, that, but, you're talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans here. But has that, has that happened more so as you've been running for office or has it happened, uh, has it been, a, been the case? Of course. But it's been the case for, for decades, I mean, right? But or? I, I was, it had no more effect on me than I would roll my eyes and go about my business. And now does it affect you differently? Well, now, now yes, I'm in a, in a political campaign. But this is, bigger than, you know, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than my campaign. This is a larger issue regarding American politics. And we're also in the 21st century now. Like you said, nine out of ten Americans say they believe in God. If you look at all of the people who are religious or spiritual, who call themselves spiritual but not religious, health and wellness, uh, AA, which is a spiritual program, psychotherapy, yoga, meditation, body-mind connection, this is the 21st century. That is mainstream culture now. So this political uh, perspective, which is so stuck in this 20th century paradigm where th it's this Newtonian mindset, that is so done, it's obsolete, where you look at the world like a big machine, and if you want to change things, you just change the pieces of the machine. Who thinks that way anymore? Mm. So it's odd when this ever-diminishing, obsolete mindset projects onto everybody else that they're fringe, when no, it, actually it's the opposite. This is where America is today, and this is why, this is why you're not connecting with America, because you're stuck back there and America has moved on. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. 
just for our Inside the Hive listeners. Save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. When you look at the, um, you know, the, this, your, your, you've been going around the country, you've been meeting people, you're now central in the media, the, you were, uh, I think it was during the last debate afterwards, your name was the most Googled uh, in 49 of the 50 states. Uh, every eye kind of looking, you writing analysis pieces, this, that, and the other. And you get to receive the... Uh, uh, to experience the real negativity of the media, of of people on social media. I mean, it's just vile in many respects. It feels to me like, you know, you talk a lot about on your campaign website about about peace initiatives and this, that, and the other. And yet we're so, as, an, as, as a society, we are so obsessed with fear and hatred and all these things. And that's all we talk about. Pick up the newspaper, go on the news, that's it. Is, isn't that just, is that just... Human nature? Is no, that American not. nature? Is that changeable? Well, we have to look at that very deeply. We are a violent society. And even though I want the same kind of gun safety measures that most progressive Democrats do, most Americans do, by the way, most yeah. Americans want <clears throat> universal background checks, want out uh, bump stocks, want to close the loopholes, the boyfriend loopholes, the gun show loopholes, want to ban assault yeah. weapons, etc. But even that is an example of treating only the symptom, we must look down at the deeper cause. We must, if we really want to transform things, and that's why my campaign is not just about changing policy. It's a larger conversation about the transformation of the culture. Americans need to look at what a violent society we are. Our environmental policies are violent. Our incarceration policies are violent. Our criminal justice policies are violent. Our entertainment values are violent. Our video games are Violent. And but everyone so, has violent video games. Japan plays more violent video games than they do in the United States, and there's less murders there in in a day than there are. I'm any, not you saying know. any one of those particular things, but I am talking about a large panoply of circumstances, which, by the way, are not only external issues but also internal issues. Look at Twitter. Look at social oh, media. Look at at, at our our political journalism. The, the mean-spiritedness that we have allowed to take hold of our national psyche. And until each of us not only is willing to look at it, but also take responsibility for nonviolence. But where does it come from? That's my question. It's it, Well, first of all, these are obviously multidimensional problems. Yeah. However, from a larger uh, sense of psychological and emotional reality, darkness is not a thing. It's the absence of light. And fear, all of this is a product of fear, which is the absence of love. We have developed, particularly in the last 40 years, we have allowed a, an economic system, which is essentially amoral. I'm not saying immoral, but it is amoral. It posits that short-term profits for corporate entities is to take primacy before before the well-being of other stakeholders. It's stockholders matter, the fiduciary responsibility of stockholders, and other stakeholders, whether it's the workers, whether it is the community, whether it is the environment, are, are secondary. Now, that viewpoint has corrupted our government. It has corrupted our government to the point where more governmental policy 
is used to advocate for short-term profits for these corporate entities and to advocate for the health and well-being of our people, people of the world, and the planet on which we live. This has put millions and millions and millions of people into chronic economic tension and anxiety. And this goes back to what I said before about desperate people. People living in survival, people who aren't thriving, aren't their best. So it's the absence of love. love energy is not neutral. So a lot of people would say, well, I don't want to hurt anybody. I wasn't trying to help anyone today, but I didn't want to hurt anyone. That's where we have come to as a society. It's not enough to not proactively seek to harm people. We are paying the price for the fact that as a society, we're not seeing the bottom line that we should be helping people either. And this is the price we're not paying. But isn't part of it a reflection on the fact that media gives people like Donald Trump... And I know you've said before that Donald Trump is is a symptom of a larger problem, but isn't it that it gives him a platform to stir and to hate? That's the point, though. Let's look at what happened in that last election. If, remember Les Moonves' line? Bad for America, good for CBS. Yeah. That's exactly, anytime you have that kind of an amoral view of things, it has immoral consequences. Les Moonves didn't wake up and say, let's screw America. He just put the profits for CBS before doing right by America. That's what I mean by amoral economics will always lead to immoral consequences. That's absolutely what happened. They were the Hillary protection machine. They were people who thought, well, we'll get higher ratings if we have him on. And I think a lot of people have blood on their hands regarding that issue and know that they do. Do you think that there is, you know, I, I mean, look, I, I this morning was reading an article about Stephen Miller and I was in a perfectly good mood. I woke up, played with my kids, had a cup of coffee, you know, everything was great. And I, I came across this article and I wanted to put my fist through a wall. And if he was standing in front of me, I would have done it to his face. And like, and then I had to say to myself, okay, relax, don't get upset. Like, this is part of their, their whole plan. And it, it, I, it, everyone I know goes through this. Like they try not to look at the news. They try not to look at social media. And then they they hear about kids being separated from their parents at the border, and they just they become so enraged. Like, how do you how do you respond to this level of hatred in a a loving way? I mean, what, how, what's this? How do you do that? We don't have a moment to waste on it. Donald Trump did not win, and he will not win again if he were to win again, only because of those people. Those people are going to vote for Donald Trump. That's, that's not the issue here. Our problem is how many people did not vote in the last election or voted for Joe Stein. We need emotional discipline at this moment. We do, it's like when you look at a great athlete, great tennis player, let's say, great one. They just dropped the ball in a way that they had not... They had not made such a stupid mistake on the court since they were 12 years old. They literally cannot afford to spend 0.001% of a second having any kind of reaction to it. They just have to keep going. Right now, this, 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 we need politics at a time like this takes great intellectual, psychological, and emotional discipline. We don't have time to spend doing anything other than reading that article, moving on, it's like I remember I read a book many years ago called Less Than Zero. Brett Easton Ellis. I don't know if you I've ever read it. I've read it, yeah. Such a devastating book. And I remember when I read that book, I thought, I don't need to read one more thing in my life to motivate me to do whatever I can to create a better world. 
it's there. If I, if I read about one massacre, if I read about one atrocity, if I read about one horror, it can't deepen my, uh, my personal reaction because I'm already at my depths about it. At a certain point, you move into solution. So I can get activated reading that article, but it, that Stephen Miller article didn't really tell me anything I didn't already know. At this point, we need to realize we have so many days before the election, and we cannot waste a moment. Do you think he's going to win again? No, not if I'm, not if I'm the nominee. <laughs> I don't think how that— do you get, How do you get the 91 million Americans who didn't vote to vote? This is what I, I believe. Because that's the only way he's not going to win. That's correct. Donald Trump— is not just a politician. Donald Trump is a phenomenon. And that's why, and my fear is that, and my belief is that an insider politics game will not defeat him. It's like taking a gun to a, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. The only way to defeat him is by creating a, 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 a phenomenon of our own, a phenomenon, phenomenon of equal force and that, and, and greater force. And that is not the phenomenon of any one person. That is the phenomenon of an uprising of consciousness and inspiration within the American people. That is where my skill set comes in. That is why to, to dismiss inspirational ability or motivational ability or the ability to discern deeper psychological and emotional things that are going on, to say, oh, that doesn't matter, that's my point about the naive about the naivete of the current viewpoint. The viewpoint should be, does anybody have any great ideas here? Anybody have any good ideas? There are some people who are more concerned about protecting their club than about furthering their cause. Because if we really are looking at what is at stake here, we, we need to open our minds and open our hearts because the current mindset, the current conventional political establishment is what got us here. Trump didn't create the entirety of the problem. The entirety of the problem, however, did create Donald Trump. So in, you can't defeat dog whistles. You have to override them. You have to, oh, you have to drown them out with far more beautiful voices. So if you're, uh, let's just say you become the nominee and you're kind of, you're up against Trump and he's, you know, he's making fun of your spirituality or your vaccination policies, I mean, beliefs and so on and so forth. Uh, do, you, do you ignore it? Do you go there? Do you, you know, with the immigration stuff, are you just going to... You know, one of the things that Ronald Reagan used to say, and it was brilliant and brilliantly effective, unfortunately, he used to say, oh, there they go again. There they go again. I think Hillary Clinton's uh, problem was that she talked about Trump too much. Mm -hmm. I think the one who got the real word was Michelle Obama. She got the word. When they go low, we go high. And too many people didn't really have a deeper understanding of what that meant. I want to talk to the American people about what's possible in the 21st century. I want to talk to the American people about emotionally and psychologically rebonding with the principles of the Declaration of Independence, realizing what a radical and radically important notion it is, the equality of souls, that God gave all men the inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and that the role of government is to, is to secure those rights. What that means, and that if those principles are just on marble walls somewhere, 
or they're just printed on parchment somewhere and placed behind glass, but they're not inscribed in our hearts, then they lose their moral force. That's why in Judaism it says, every generation must rediscover God for itself. Every generation must rediscover the rambunctiousness and the healthy spirit of rebellion that is at the core of Americanism. And this is what I mean by, by the part of the brain that just rationally analyzes an issue. That doesn't, carry, that doesn't carry psychological and emotional power. It doesn't carry shakti. It doesn't carry ecstasy. What does carry that kind of fervor is when we are reminded of what's going on on a deeper level. It activates something. And to put that down as though that's unimportant could not be more naive. But you just said earlier that... Um you know, one of the big problems in the absence of darkness and, and uh, of, of light, there's darkness and so on. You have tens of millions of Americans who uh, can barely afford to feed their kids, don't have jobs, you know, are living paycheck to paycheck. There was a study last year that uh, that asked, I think it was like, I can't remember the number, but it was like tens of millions of Americans, like what would happen if an expense came up four hundred to five hundred dollars. They couldn't make four hundred dollars, and they would they there would nothing they could do. They would have to sell their car or skip meals or not pay their health care. And yet you have Jeff Bezos, hundred and thirty two billion after his divorce. No federal taxes. No federal taxes for Amazon. You have, you know, the top four richest people in the world are worth the same as the bottom three point six billion. Mm-hmm. And one percent owns more wealth than the bottom ninety percent. And so. How do you get people, and a lot of people, I, I, I think that part of, you know, and I don't like talking about him too much, but we end up talking about him on every show, but part of the thing with Trump was that I think part of it was his, his hatred and his ability to stir up the media and all these other things uh, and tapping into all those fears about immigration and so on. But part of it was we've tried it with all these other folks and it didn't work out. We're going to try it with someone who doesn't look like these other folks. And I, and I, I, I guess the question is, is, how do you get these people, these 91 million people? Sure, it, it, uh, speeches are great, and, and being able to talk about spirituality and God is great, but how do you get them to, to realize that going to a voting booth is actually the thing that's going to change their economic status? Millions of Americans are aware and have been aware for a long time that the system has screwed them. The system has screwed them, and the system is rigged. Only two people spoke to that. Only two people validated that pain. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Hillary's mistake was that she did not validate that pain. Mm. I'm not saying she didn't care about it. I'm not saying that her policies would not have addressed it. She would not name it. So it did not surprise me at all. I felt that there was going to be a populist cry of despair and rage, which was totally justified. That's why I feel Bernie would have beaten him, and that's why I felt there was going to be this populist uh, outcry. It was either going to be a, um, a progressive populist like Bernie or an authoritarian populist by, like Trump. Those millions of people who did not vote, We're assuming that they didn't vote because they're just living in survival and they didn't have time. I disagree with that. I think millions of people didn't vote because however dysfunctional an act of rebellion it might have been, it was an act of rebellion. It it was an instinctive refusal to participate in a system that they knew had not helped them and was not helping them. So when you say how would a spiritual voice speak to the spiritual voices such as mine are radical truth tellers. 
I speak to the level of the corruption. That's the point here. I'm not saying that the other candidates are lying, because they're not. And I have a lot of respect for them as individuals. And I'm not running against anyone. I'm running with a lot of really good people. I'm not saying they're lying. But when you go into a court of law, and you raise your hand, and you take an oath, you take an oath not just to tell the truth, but to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I'm telling the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth to the best of my ability. How level, how deep the level of corruption goes. That's why I'm talking about race. That's why I talk about the military industrial complex. That's why I talk about millions of traumatized children. And I think one of the mistakes that both political parties make is they don't get how smart people are. Hmm. I have, one of the things that my career has given me is that I'm very well-traveled not just geographically, but socioeconomically. And no, no socioeconomic group in this country has a monopoly on values, and no socioeconomic group in this country has a, has a monopoly on intelligence or on nobility. And I see what happens with anyone when you get real. And that's why a lot of people haven't voted. Nobody's just saying it like it is. And that's why, for a lot of people, even who don't agree with me, mm-hmm. appreciate that I'm laying it down. <laughs> and that includes, by the way, a lot of so-called spiritual people. I can't tell you how many people voted for Trump and say, but I vote for you. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'll vote for you because you acknowledge the, you know, we can tell you're a religious woman, all that. The, the conventional political establishment they 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 were gobsmacked by Bernie and they were gobsmacked by 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 Trump because they don't factor in anything underneath the waterline. My entire professional level of expertise is about what goes on under the waterline. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You uh, you've received um, some criticism from your vaccination policies. Have those changed, or what? What, what is? I, it's hard to kind of discern on the internet. My comment, so much. my my comment, my sloppy comment was about mandatory vaccines. When I said uh, they seemed Orwellian, they seemed draconian. That was yeah. a sloppy comment that I regret making. Anytime there's a medical intervention, there's both benefit and risk, and the government has to come down on the side of public health. Do you? Um, uh, are there other things, I think, you, you know, you seem like someone who will acknowledge if you say something that you maybe change your mind on. Are there other things that have your mind has changed on as you have been uh, on the campaign trail? Other issues that you kind of come across that like, oh, well, maybe there's a different way of thinking about this, like climate well, change or anything like that. Not that I know, not that I know of, but I don't think anybody has a monopoly on truth, including myself. So I'm always open if mm. somebody has... Um, uh, not that I know of, but I wouldn't be averse to saying it if I did. Do you think that um, I look at when I when I look at your early discussions in the early '90s around uh, God and the Democratic Party and religion and so on? It kind of feels like the discussions today around climate change is that people don't. It, the, there are certain people that recognize it's going to be a huge deal in, in 30, 40 years, but they don't necessarily. It's not happening right at this moment. How do you I'm make not one of them? No. How do you make how do you make them one of them millions and millions of them understand the importance of this issue? Though, I think people hear you on the level that you speak from. I think part of leadership is not just trying to get people to believe anything, but by believing it yourself. 
so passionately and articulating it so clearly that the conversation you are holding literally has the power to increase the energy around a topic. And that's, as a matter of fact, what I feel I bring to the whole climate um, debate. My views on climate are very similar to other Democrats. But the issue is that the minute we get there, whoever the Democrat is, the oil and gas companies aren't going to just say, oh, okay, a Democrat's in office, we'll stop now. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. They're not going to have the EPA anymore, but they're going to still come at us in every way possible. Now, what we need is a president who has the power to harness the energies of the American people around the excitement of the Green New Deal, that we got 12 years, we got 12 years, we got to sequester the carbon, we got to reforest, we've got to develop um, uh, uh, alternative forms of sustainable transportation energy, we've got to deal with the animal factory farming, we've got to deal with that methane gas, we've got to deal with that nitrous oxide, and truly, it truly helped people. It's like when, when John Kennedy said, we will be going to the moon within a decade. That's really, and I talked about this in the, fir in the first, um, uh, in the first uh, debate. Uh, debate. If we, listen, I, I said to one of the other candidates the other day, I said, all of us know that whoever among us wins, we're going to hope that Jay Inslee would be head of the EPA. And she, she kind of chuckled. Right, we all know we need a world-class environmental scientist at the head of the EPA. We know that we need to get rid of the oil company execs. We need to get rid of the chemical company execs. But if that's all we do, that will not be a powerful enough force field to truly be able to push back the obstruction of those people. The only thing that, it, that will make this transformation occur is if we create such excitement and sense of singular purpose and sense of national national goal as to deal with this and to be a world leader. That's what leadership should be. And what leadership is now too often, which is the corruption of our political system, is people are going around saying to this group, I'll do this for you, vote for me. I'll do that for you, vote for me. They've turned, they've turned voters into poker chips. That's not what I'm doing. That's not the game I'm playing. I'm saying to the American people, we can do something really great. We can, we can do things that are so great. This generation will be known forever for these great things that we did. When you look at, uh, do you, so you mentioned uh, another candidate. Do you guys all talk to each other or is not it, a, do you like, on not like a, a, a WhatsApp thread or <clears throat> well, something? Well, some of the things like this week, we will all be at, at the DNC uh, meeting in San Francisco. Um, I, the only one I haven't met is John Delaney. Mm -hmm. There is a, sense of respect at least i can only speak to my experience but it's pretty beautiful actually and do you uh are there times that you're like backstage and you kind of all just like chatting away and huh, sharing yes. your viewpoints and yes you know a lot of them are you know they're they serve in the senate together things like that but even uh with myself yes i have felt um treated um respectfully if you and kindly, yes. If you weren't running, who uh, who do you think you would be, you know, interested in and the most? Who would you be not supporting? I don't want to put you well, in that position. Well, I would position, be supporting like, that but, person. But who who would you, who would you think who do you like the most? Or I'm, I, I, I'm not prepared to say that because I hope that one day <laughs> I will have the opportunity to ask that person to be my running mate. <laughs> Um, are there policies of certain people that you uh, that you? Yeah, economically, I'm a Bernie Elizabeth Democrat. Yeah, got it. Um, uh, we are too. My wife has uh, bumper stickers and whatnot, uh, t-shirts and and everything. Um, all right, so we have time for a l last few questions. Um, when you 
look at the situation with Trump, uh, one of the things that I worry about, if you kind of, if you, you know, you brought up Reagan before, uh, and I feel like we're kind of just at this moment in time feeling uh, the effects of Reaganism. Uh, you know, Clinton, uh, I'm, I'm all about taking, you know, ragging on some Democrats here. Like Bill Clinton's uh, decisions uh, with the three strikes rules and, uh, and everything he did with incarceration has put this country in the prison system is in FCC. such disarray. Every, all these tons of things uh, that he did. This whole centrist democratic leadership council thing. Did a million things that he did. And we are just seeing the repercussions of that. Do you think that the repercussions, if, if, if I, if it, look, if he serves for another four years, like God help us, honestly, but if, if just these four years, do you think that the repercussions uh, can be erased easily? Or do you think that they, they are going to come back to roost a decade from now in a, in a diabolical and atrocious way? We should not kid ourselves that the president has a magic wand. And right now, thank God, the president doesn't have a magic wand. I have said to many people, you need to wake up if you're, we're going to elect certainly someone like myself. But you have to do more than wake up to elect a Democrat. You need to wake up and stay awake. You, we need to become people for whom citizenship is simply seen as part of what it means to live a well-lived life. Because it's the chronic disengagement from politics of way too many Americans who theoretically should have known better that helped create this situation. That's number one. That, you know, I, I always joke at my lectures and I say, women have start, start, need to start saying to, 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 to our lovers, I'm uh, going to a city council meeting on Thursday night. Want to go with me? <laughs> People laugh. You know, this idea that it's got to simply start being part of the fabric of our, of, of our lives. You know, if, if corporate uh, lobbyists are talking to these people every hour of every day, it's not enough that the legislators only hear from you every two or four years. Mm. Beyond that, I don't think we should kid ourselves that all of this is going to be quickly fixed. Some of these, some of the damage, and, and I agree with you, some of this damage is not just from Trump. It's been accumulating for the last 40 years. I don't want to depress anybody, <laughs> but some of this is going to take 20 years hmm. to, to right this ship, especially given some of the judicial appointments. But we can get started. And we will not get started with just some incremental changes. We will get started if we, 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 we claim a fundamental break from some of the social and political and economic status quos of our time. And we can certainly make enough change that uh, within 20 years, this country will be back on track. So last couple of questions for you. Um, one of the things that I do think that Bill Clinton was always right about was that people go to the polls for one reason. Uh, he said that, you know, maybe it's abortion for you or it's the economy or you like the politician or whatever it is. But it's usually one thing that, that sends you the most people to go to the polls. What do you think the issue of our time is right now uh, when it comes to this next election? The issues aren't always the issue. There are issues underlying the issues. On a political level, the underlying issue is getting the money out of politics. But even beyond that, it's reclaiming our democracy. I can't tell you how many people at my, at my rallies talk about how I was never involved, I was never interested in politics before. I never saw it as relevant to my life. And that is why I'm running. I, 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 
I, I help people see that politics is so relevant. Ultimately, people do something because it's relevant to them. We, we need to help people understand again what a big thing this is, and that this, this is a light unto the world, this very possibility that all people could have the right to self-actualize, to soar, to spread their wings, to live the lives they want to, to thrive without interference from an external source. That is so huge. And it doesn't just give us rights, it gives us responsibilities. And when people are aligned with that, and I do think that the average American has an instinctive understanding that America matters. And I think it's very condescending and patronizing to think that just because someone's poor that they don't get that. That just because someone uh, doesn't have a, a means, that they, that they aren't noble and don't like to think, and, and, and as we all do, that what we do matters. That is where we need a realignment. And when people really get why this matters and why I have a responsibility, that this is an amazing blessing that's been bequeathed to me, and that we have the responsibility to expand it and to protect it and to nurture it and to bequeath it to our children, when you wake up to that, you can't wait to run to the polls. So my belief is that the biggest issue is the is economic. Um, so you're and, a Tom Steyer type of person. No, That's what I, he says. Tom says that it's all going to be on the economic. Well, level. no, it's. I think that it's. I think that for Republicans, the reason they're going to vote for Donald Trump, especially for evangelical Republicans, is abortion. Um, and uh, so that it's just like toss that one to the side. But I think that the reason that the people in the middle who who are going to kind of go either way. For them, I think it will be economic decisions, and and I. But you can see that both. But th there you get back to what we were talking about before that both Bernie and Trump spoke to people's economic fears. Yes, and I think that a lot there's there are things that are out of most people's control right now that will kind of decide whether Trump gets to run on that platform if we if we are in recession. You know, if if the yields and all these things continue to fall, all, if if all of these things continue to happen, he's he's in a lot of trouble. But if they're not, the 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 big problem I think is that someone needs to needs to fix the solution, the problem of corporations having the amount amount of power and control, paying zero dollars in taxes, these billionaires and things like that. And and I think it's look, you there are people that love and hate AOC on both sides of the aisle. But I think that she's completely 1,000% right in this. And I'm curious, if you were to become president, would you? how would you tackle that? First of all, I love her. <laughs> Second of all, you're absolutely right. But how much moral authority does any candidate have making that argument who themselves has taken tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars from those corporate forces? All these people saying they're going to go to Washington and fight these big these corporations. Look it up on the internet how much money they themselves have taken. And when I talk to audiences it, 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 to, to, to validate how rigged this is, how wrong this is, and I'm very clear what we have to do. We have to repeal the 2017 tax cut. It's a $2 trillion tax cut. It gave 83 cents of every dollar to the very richest individuals and corporations, although we should put back in the middle class tax cuts. We have to get rid of these subsidies. We paid $26 billion to the fossil fuel companies alone last year. Martin Luther King said, if they give it to rich people, they call it a subsidy. If they give it to poor people, they call it a handout. 
We need to recognize, and I say this to my audiences all the time, it's not enough for me to say I want to do it. You need to get what happened here or it will happen again. The only safe repository is in the minds of the people. that You're not going to have power in your hands if you don't have it in your mind. You need to get what happened here. That, that years ago, our country legislated away, it so betrayed the American people when our government, actually gave big pharmaceutical companies, surrendered to big pharmaceutical companies, the right to negotiate with big pharma for drug prices. We need to look at the fact that while I think we would all agree the military needs to have every dollar that it, it, it deems necessary to protect our, our, our security, it is, should not be considered a fringe idea that there are up to, let's say, 100, possibly even some would argue $300 billion that we spend above legitimate security costs on, on Would you tax billionaires up to 90%? Absolutely, I'm getting to that. So let me first just finish with that. The, the military-industrial complex, which only two of us running even go near in terms of the money that we spend that has more to do with short-term profit, uh, profits for defense manufacturers. And yes, I believe that 3% 3, 3 of the assets of billionaires should be taxed and 2% of the assets of people with $50 million and more. You do that? We're going to have a lot of cash on hand, and we're going to use that cash to do the right thing. Do you, how many? What percent of billionaires should be taxed? Did you say three percent? Three? Don't you think it should be like ninety? On the assets of billionaires? No, no. I think I think well, that no, I think no, no, that, no, 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 no. look, they, we're not talking about the regular corporate tax rate. We're talking about that additional. I just don't uh, think that additional. any. I pers if it were me, if I were running, and not that I would ever do it, I, there, sh there would be a law that says you can't be a billionaire. Like, once you hit that number, it's just like everything yeah. just Yeah, well, good luck with that. Good, <laughs> good luck with that one. Good luck with that one, and, you know. And then that's why I talk about the millions of traumatized children. I talk about 43, uh, you know, we don't even talk. When, when the pollsters call and they ask you what issues you care about, the, the establishment doesn't even... It, it tells the American people what the issues are, rather than the American yeah. people determining. What about the fact that 43 million people uh, live uh, in or near poverty? 43 million people living in hunger. 13 million children in America living in hunger. 12,000 children on this planet dying a day of starvation. Millions of American children who live in chronic trauma. Millions of American children who go to school every day asking the teachers if maybe they have some food for them. Going to classrooms where there aren't even the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. And the, the, the despair of these children is simply normalized by the traditional political establishment because they're not old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency, they're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. It is corrupt to the core, and that is how we're going to win. When we admit to the people this is corrupt to the core, and it is time for the people to step in. All right, last question. If you, could, if, if you were sitting across from Donald Trump right now, what would you say to him? If you could say one thing to him. I don't know what I would say to him. I know in my heart I would be silently blessing him and asking, asking God to guide my thoughts and guide my words. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to this. It's been really fascinating. And good luck on the rest of the, the campaign trail. Thank you. Thank you to my guest today, the one and only Marianne Williamson. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week. 
Blinkist and Lightstream. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Go leave a wonderful review about how much you loved our show. And I will see you all next week when we're going to talk about something more terrifying than the current president of the United States of America. Yes.